Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices. And it's Jan Bartle and it's about nine seconds to four o'clock. Today, a report back from the 2015 Swan Island Peace Convergence with Kieran O'Reilly. Maybe the, the reason you haven't heard a lot about it was that there wasn't actually a convergence onto the island this year after the violence by the security forces military last year. I think people just had a bit of a fallback this time and just had a convergence to talk about things. I was speaking to Kieran O'Reilly who was there and I think he was there at the last one as well. Captain Trash and Water. You'll hear more about Captain Trash later. Police politics, Japanese style. Journalist and researcher wasn't on the program over the last month and the reason why he wasn't, he's been on holiday in Japan but it wasn't Absolutely all holiday, not with Nick. He's going to talk to us about politics and what's been happening. And there's plenty happening in Japan. And then Professor Emeritus James Petrus. I spoke with him this morning at his home in New York. We had a little bit of an interruption with the dogs barking, wanted their afternoon tea. But we got through that and he spoke about the Middle East, Greece and a wee bit about Japan but first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's had another one of those. A week, Jane, listener, when the signing of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the World Trans-Pacific Not-So-Free Trade Agreement shows just how untrue was he these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lots are who abuse our environmental laws by using them, well, well abusing them. If these untrue blue Aussie economy and job records continue this abuse, not so free trade minister Andrew Robb the workers warned, they will give the great international resource giants they accuse of environmental vandalism, which in itself shows how extreme these long-haired commie greenies are, as if responsible international resource giants would not care about the environment if they will force these responsible giants to sue the true blue Aussie government quite properly sue under the terms of this wonderful agreement which is so good for all of us. This shows just how untrue blue Aussie these evil environmentalists are. The responsible international resource giants agreed with Andrew. Our bottom line shows we just love the true blue Aussie environment. Uh, so, Andrew, the true blue Aussie people will now be able to see the details of what you've signed us up to. Oh, yes, yes, certainly. You can have a look and amend it where we see fit. Good God, no. What would our partners think of us? How could we be trusted as a reliable partner? Uh, but, but when it was criticised for secrecy, you said we could see it at this time. I didn't say you could change it. Uh, 
but the US of is odds on to change it. Of course, after all, the US of has made it clear and, and, and it had not evil China, not that we have anything against evil China, clear it must determine the conditions of world trade. That is its prerogative as a very, very, very close friend of true blue Aussie. Uh, but what if the US of changes key clauses which attack our autonomy? Uh, medical costs going through the roof, for instance. That is a typical anti-US of 3CR question. They will make changes in a very, very, very friendly way. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. Well, that sounds like we've all uh, all been worried over nothing, really, on, on which great resource giants, the optimism of the week award to energy giant, as they call it, AG Hell on Earth, after joining a mob of co-energy giants one day a couple of weeks ago saying how they supported action on climate change, next day AG Hell on Earth was forced to criticise those same untrue blue Aussie long-haired commie greeny wooden worker and iron lots who suggested its commitment but to ending reliance on fossils left just a bit to be desired. What are they talking about? We are committed to ending our reliance on fossils by 2050. It put them in their place. 2050, still polluting happily and expecting the planet still to be here. A.G. Hell on Earth, your Optimism of the Week award is on the way. Although Wednesday, bit of an explanation, it did clarify that commitment at its AGM where some of the long-haired lot raised a few of these issues. What the closure of big polluting old coal-fired power stations needed, Chairman Jerry Maycook, the planet showed why he's worth a few trillion to shareholders, is a coherent national policy, government support. Exactly. Why should the big polluters be expected to fund expensive ending big polluting, ending the planet, when there's a public purse to pay for all that? And with proper and appropriate government compensation, they might even bring the closure forward to, say, 2049. OK, not much, but it's something. But the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, has launched a campaign for True Blue Aussie to get back on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Human Rights Council. Yes, yes, the same Human Rights Council. She vehemently attacked former Socialist Party rotating big supremo little Kevy Rod for the workers for wasting money trying to get on. Now, given that exemplar of human rights, Saudi Arabia, as we mentioned last week, is making a bribe, uh, sorry, a bid to chair the council with an impeccable human rights record in beheadings, crucifixions, that young bloke they planned to crucify for the heinous crime of calling for democracy, and, and his lawyer serving 16 years, I think it is, for the equally heinous crime of defending him, that should encourage the legal profession no end, lots of strong defences in the future. Well, we suppose the Saudis understand the defences are relevant. Why, why waste a good human rights opportunity? Stoning, usually reserved for women, flogging, often resulting in and a little bit of death, hacking off the odd hand or foot, arm, leg, which doesn't respect human rights, a litany of commitment to human rights. And given the USR, which just loves human rights and regularly attacks their abuse anywhere where the government doesn't respect the freedom of USR, capital, 
It admires Saudi, respects its human rights record. Well, it's something they share. Why, just this week, the US upset the example, executed a woman who'd been on death row for about 15 years, waiting to be executed, presumably for murdering an abusive husband. And it so recognises the financial burdens fighting a case in court would impose on poor blacks, it saves them the burden of even greater debt by just shooting them in the first place. So true blue was his honourable record with asylum seekers, indigenous people, enemies of the state like workers and evil unions and environmental terrorists. Well, we'd have to be a walk-up start. Where the US of is so righteously appalled at the abuse of human rights, it is just so angry that evil Russia is bombing Syria, supporting the Syrian government. They should be bombing the evil people we are bombing, supporting the freedom-loving, liberty, freedom and democracy-loving, anti-government forces we are arming and training. The US of Secretary for Offensive Train Killing Ashes to Ashes exploded. And you can't trust them, for Christ's sake. In Ukraine, they are breaking all recognized international law by arming and training rebels opposed to the government we support. Uh, that's the government with the fascist emblems which overthrew the elected government. Exactly. Overthrew an elected government which abused democracy. No abuse of democracy in Trublo was his asylum seeker policy. Well, more than likely economic refugee policy. These people posing as asylum seekers to take advantage of our goodness. And the no connection whatever award of the week to the announcement that Nauru would process 600 refugee applications in seven days after the sponges on our goodness had been enjoying the Pacific Island hospitality for more than two years. Just three days before a case involving the asylum seekers is to hit the High Court. Now, okay, some people think there might be some connection, but the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, still breathing a sigh of relief. From our point of view, the still breathing bits, the... No, no, don't say that. Anyway, Pete said there was no connection. So there must be no connection. Pure coincidence, a sudden lightning flash of humanity. So, Nauru, Trublawasi, Pete, your no connection whatever award is on the way. Well, as our government through Pete keeps pointing out, Nauru is totally independent in these things. Oh, apart from a bit of transfilled the refugees running the joint with Trublawasi financing and determining where the sponges can end up. Uh, at the other end of the ideological spectrum, the Socialist Party Minister Richard Mauls, the refugees, agreed with Pete that refugees could go anywhere they liked as long as it wasn't true blue Aussie. At first I thought he used the word humanely, but then realised he had said, as soon as humanly possible. As this report shows, an increase in the number of official unemployed out of work for more than a year, 7 out of 10, one reason mooted was the increasing number of single parents, mostly single mums, now on the dole thanks to the compassion of the socialist government under that feminist icon Julia Gallinghart. But how gracious of the minister responsible Jenny Makin and Poor to concede the sellout of single mums may have been a mistake.
Meanwhile, while single mums and their kids were on the breadline, Julie was cel- uh, Julia was celebrating her impeccable starved single mums and their kids feminist credentials with her great friend Hillary in the US of. But we can be sure, like Jenny, she feels bad about it. Our sympathy to Jenny and Julia for feeling the pain of making the poor poorer, but not quite as much as our sympathy for the victims demoted from normal poverty to super-duper extreme can't-survive poverty. Finally, on those struggling to survive as the caring business class suffers crippling taxes, Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Worstercut Wages said big business and the government must win hearts and minds to convince people we need tax reform, as they call it. Uh, because there are trade-offs, uh, such as, Jennifer, well, people trade off their wealth for our wealth. <laughs> Good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. And you can say good morning to Kevin Healy tomorrow at 9am for City Limits, which he presents with Corey Green. And that goes from 9 o'clock until 10. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. And the voice on this message is one of the legends of Left After Breakfast. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. The Australian Defence Force has dozens of military barracks, training facilities and spy bases, just part of one of the largest real estate portfolios in Australia. And one of these is Swan Island. What goes on there is not found on any government website, even less than that is known about Pine Gap. Kieran O'Reilly, long-time peace activist, was there at Swan Island, which is near Queenscliff, for the 2015 Swan Island Peace Convergence. I spoke to him on his return to Melbourne and asked him if it is in fact the truth that less is known about what goes on at Swan Island than what we know about what happens at Powering Gap. Yeah, I mean, I think what's happened both in Britain and Australia in this recent war is they're putting more and more stuff under special forces and that shroud of secrecy that covers special forces. So politicians in both Britain and Australia can just respond, we don't talk about special forces. So even last year when some peace activists were, you know, abused and and stripped and hooded uh, by 
personnel at Swan Island, there was no accountability. There was no name of the person who stripped them, who dragged them through the uh, bush and um, hooded them and abused them. So, and that when that was, I think Senator Ludlam brought this up in an inquiry, and the bland response was, "We don't talk about special forces." So, that secrecy um, is evident there at Swan Island, and. I mean, I come from Brisbane. I grew up in the back of Gallipoli Barracks, which is a huge um, area of real estate, and uh, they're obviously not planning to move. They're pumping millions of dollars into infrastructure there, and that's where um, a most recent crop of soldiers deployed to Iraq last week. Um, so there's not a lot of accountability or transparency going on in relation to the military. Just staying with Swan Island, what is known about who goes there and what they do there? Yes. Yeah, there's a specialised training for the uh, Australian SAS and um, ASIS and other security forces there. It's been maintained there for a number of years. Um, it became a focus of what's left of the anti-war movement, I guess, five years ago. So a group of people have been going down there. Uh, this is the sixth year, but there's been five years of non-violent direct action, blockading and... Um, occupying the island, you know, getting into into the area. Yeah, people in Melbourne have been focusing on that as the most local contribution to the ongoing US wars that Australia is involved in. Why was the decision made this year that there wouldn't be a non-violent protest? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been living overseas for quite a while, so this is the first convergence I've been at. And although... <laughs> The wars are escalating and expanding. The anti-war movement seems to be shrinking, so the people have sustained this non-violent resistance at Swan Island. thought it was time to pause for reflection, and that's what we've been doing for the last few days. The military themselves closed down the island in response to our presence there, and um, there was presence of Australian Federal Police there yesterday, and they seem to be still on a very high security footing, even though we'd uh, assured them that we wouldn't be taking action this year. Did you get onto the island or not? No, no, there was no plans to do any uh, blockading or or incursion into the island this year. It was just um, people that went down to reflect on the last five years of non-violent direct action and where we are at now and where the war is at now and where could we possibly go in the future, given the um, minimal resources and personnel that we've got? So there's about 50 people who gathered, which was good. Where did you camp? They kind of rented a, a house down there, a large, a large kind of old holiday house, yeah. Wasn't any kind of roughing camping it, which was nice. Give us some... older in this business. <laughs> Give us some examples of, of some of the people's reflections on the last couple of years and how, they've, how they're feeling now. Well, you know, I think people acknowledge there's an absence of um, of a broader anti-war movement, and it's ironic that it's a hundred years of Gallipoli, and we're back in the old Ottoman Empire bombing Syria at the moment. There's a real crying need for people to be thinking about the war, discussing the war, trying to understand the nature of this war, and responding to it. Uh, you know, it seems that that uh, that movement, that march in its millions in 2003, has kind of um, evaporated and um, meanwhile you've got the you know the huge amount of refugees coming out of this war that's you know still part of of what we did in Iraq really and um, you know I think a number of people traumatized by how they were treated last year by we assume the SAS or some commandos um, with the ADF so it was good to gather with those people again and talk that through 
And, um, you know, they're basically behaving as they do when they're abroad, you know, by humiliating, assaulting, hooding, stripping people they capture. You know, Australian soldiers were involved in handing over civilians to be tortured in Iraq. It's pretty well established um, that they have a problem with torturing people abroad and, um, you know, they're they're quite willing to treat non-violent Australian citizens similarly. Do those who were assaulted in that way, do they have any recourse at all? I think there's some kind of legal civil action going on. But, you know, that's, you know, my experience at S11 was that, you know, when we were bashed, um, that took about seven years to resolve itself. So I think it's moving quite slowly. Kieran, why do you believe activism against war has evaporated to such an extent? Are people just war-weary, war or is it more than that? I, I think they've worked out how to wage war. You know, I grew up during the Vietnam War, and they've worked out how to wage war without disrupting civil society <laughs> and without creating tension in civil society. And I think, you know, even the small effort we made this week at Swan Island, there was tension uh, amongst the security forces and the military, and one has to you know, find creative ways non-violent ways to create tension when one's government is killing people abroad. Yeah, you know, I think often when the anti-war movement emerges, there's all sorts of opportunistic political groups ranging from the Labor Party to the authoritarian left, whose interest really is not to to provide an obstacle to war-making, but to control and milk that movement, you know, for recruits or newspaper sales or positioning themselves and... um, you know, I think the Labor Party, and my understanding of what happened here in 2003 is that they, they did a pretty good job at, um, you know, co-opting and deflating the anti-war movement. And uh, it's a very hard country to organise in Australia, just considering the vast distances and, you know, the expense and exhaustion of getting around the place, basically. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. You know, I'll be, my most recent work has been around... Um, persecution of Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and uh, I was, you know, end up being quite distressed how, how they were abandoned by the um, anti-war groups and the anti-war professionals and careerists and the anti-war movement and they were in trouble for exposing war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and millions of people marched against that war and you kind of ask the question, if you march against the war, what you're doing is implicitly inciting people to non-violently resist the war, whether they're civilians like Julian Assange or whether they're members of the military like Chelsea Manning. And once you incite people, I think you're obligated to um, accompany them through the courts and through uh, you know, their imprisonment. And um, that's how you have a movement that actually intervenes. And you know, the, in reality, most more serious resistance to the war came out of the US military than out of the US peace movement. And uh, you know, there were a lot of courageous people in the military who refused to deploy, who once deployed refused to cooperate, etc. Really, it's up to the civilian peace movement to offer them solidarity. What news do you have of how Chelsea's getting on in jail? Well, there's a recent persecution where uh, there were charges related to uh, a tube of toothpaste and Chelsea's possession that was overdue and a copy of Vanity Fair or whatever, and, um, you know, that uh, was once put, once again solitary confinement. Up to that point, Chelsea had been working in the kitchen, which indicates to me that um, Chelsea's not in fear of personal safety or whatever. And writing for The Guardian and, and doing good work, and, and you know, the articles I've read uh, 
there seems to be a pretty upbeat spirit. And uh, like Chelsea's five years into this 35-year sentence now. So, and you know, we know over a year, about roughly a year of that included torture in Quantico. The living conditions in Leavenworth and Kansas are a lot better than the torturous regime at the and at the, at the at the time of the initial imprisonment was actually which was actually designed to break Chelsea to concoct the story about Julian Assange and you know, it was great courage that that didn't happen refused to cooperate yeah it's, I mean, it's a very courageous person you know so there is a a level of freedom to connect with the outside world from the prison in America I think there's uh, interaction with the legal support team that's carrying out an appeal and um, Chelsea's writing publicly for The Guardian and other newspapers. I don't know how many personal visits are occurring or whether a decision has been made. The best way to get through this experience is to keep focused in prison rather than thinking about the outside too much. But I'm thinking about writing for a, a newspaper. Uh, I think that's happening. I think um, Chelsea's on this, some kind of relationship with The Guardian newspaper like a feature article writer or whatever. And what about Julian, who's now in, what is in his fifth year? Yeah, um, this five years of detention without charge. And I think the Swedish accusations, three of those have run their course due to statute of limitations. And, but I think they've become increasingly irrelevant. I, I, I think what, you know, Julian's position, Amnesty's position, Ecuador and government's position was if you guarantee no further transfer to the United States, Julian would be willing to go to Sweden. And then the request was for the prosecutor to come and interview him in the embassy. And the prose- I, I don't think the prosecution was ever serious about, you know, formalising these accusations and the charges and actually prosecuting a case. Otherwise, they would have got, you know, their ass over to London. Like, they have, you know, I think it's 40 or 50 other cases where the Swedish prosecutors have come to London to interview suspects in other cases. Uh, during that same time period, so I would assume the thinking is that if the, you know, the Swedish stuff disappeared, came out of the embassy, the Brits would arrest Julian on the basis of breaking bail and hand him over to the Americans. Doesn't look like any simple way out at the moment. Yeah, I can't imagine a scenario where he would ever feel safe outside of that embassy. No, <laughs> I mean the embassy's been surrounded now for three years, 24/7 by London Metropolitan Police at the cost of 11 million pounds, and you know there's all sorts of dodgy ex-special forces people working that street. In terms of providing bodyguard protection to very wealthy people who live in Knightsbridge, you know, so it's a very intense street. Like it's full of visible and covert security. So it's. It's very Kafkaesque, you know, and there doesn't seem to be much tension around the issue in England or in Australia. You know, there's nothing in Australia equivalent to the campaign around David Hicks or the journalist who was in jail in Egypt. It's hard to know how it's all going to play out. And then there's the other whistleblower who now is forced to live in Russia. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it was a great thing. If it wasn't for Sarah Harrison primarily from WikiLeaks and Julian... Uh, Edward Snowden would be, in the, would be in custody for the last two years. WikiLeaks, he got Snowden out of Hong Kong, where the Guardian left him, <laughs> and uh, got him got into Russia. So that was a, a, a great thing to do, a great act of solidarity by Julian and Sarah. And Sarah herself is now in exile in Germany. She can't safely return to England to do, after participating in that. 
So WikiLeaks is going strong? Yeah, they seem to remain pretty upbeat and focused and doing their thing, so they're still doing that good work. So. And what's on the horizon for you, Karen? Nothing very obvious at the moment. Uh, I guess I'm heading back to Brisbane and just kind of reflect on the lay of the land, you know, before making any other decisions. Yeah, it was quite interesting to be back here in the, on the, in the anniversary of Gallipoli. Um, but my mother had three uncles who went through an Ogre barracks at the back of our house to, to Gallipoli and to France. And, well, my other grandparents were fighting the British in Ireland at the time. So it was interesting to kind of reflect on all that. And there really wasn't much opposition to the mythology of Gallipoli, you know, besides Russell Crowe's effort and um, the SBS football journalist who lost his job for tweeting out on Anzac Day. So hard to know what to do, really, in these times. And that's Kieran O'Reilly, as I said, a long-time peace activist, originally from Brisbane, who spent many years living in the UK and also Ireland and spent a few years in the US in jail in the US. Are you looking after someone? Carers Victoria supports people looking after friends or family members who have a disability, mental or chronic illness or are frail due to age. There are 774,000 carers in Victoria. Are you one? We're here to support carers through practical, financial and information services. Just call the Carers Advisory Line on 1800 242 636 to start the conversation about how we can help. We have many visitors here at 3CR, but it's not every day that a real-life pirate comes to town replete with hat and eye patch, impressive white beard. We were amazed, but also a little bit perplexed. He called himself Captain Trash, so I asked him where he came from. Well, he arrived in the country. I was just a small boy back in 1803. I don't quite look that old, but it's true. They sent me out here into the colonies. I think I might have stolen a crumb of bread or borrowed a crumb of bread or something, and that was my crime. So I was feeling a little bit miffed by that, and I thought, that's ridiculous. Fancy doing that to a fella. So I turned to a life of piracy. And I had this fantastic treasure chest full of all sorts of beautiful things, and I buried it in a sand dune down near Sorrento. Came back one day. The sand dune was gone. Can you believe that? The treasure chest was gone, and all there was was lots of plastic. So I thought, well, if I'm going to keep looking for this treasure chest, I may as well clean up the plastic on the way. And while I'm doing that, I might get a few other people to help me. There's a message there too, isn't there? What happened to the sand dune? Well, that's a very good question. Tangaro, you know, the uh, sea god from the Pacific had this saying that if you care for me, then I can care for you. Well, maybe someone wasn't caring about that sand dune because it just happened to disappear when his big shipping channel got dredged down near the heads. Now, back in the... 19th century, they didn't have plastic. What's going on? Oh, well, that's a funny thing, you know. All the birds and animals that used to live in the bay and uh, right, right around the oceans, all around the world, anything that floated in those days when there was no plastic, well, you could eat it. It wouldn't do you much harm, mightn't do you much good, but it wouldn't hurt. 
nowadays, they think that anything's floating's okay, and so all those plastic things, they get swallowed by the birds, and it just sits in their gut. You know the thing? I've heard it said of it lately. Every bit of plastic that's ever been made is still there. And those birds starve, don't they? They do, yeah. It just won't pass through their systems, and so it's sitting there inside their stomachs, and they think they're full. So they got no other food coming in, so that's just bad news for them. What about the fish? How do they cope with all this plastic in the ocean and the sea? Well, that's a good question too, because the thing about it is, the plastic, as it's floating, actually adsorbs toxins from the water. So if the fish swallow those things, then the toxins can get in their system and possibly in their flesh. And if we eat the flesh, then we're eating the toxins. Now, they've been making plastic for quite a long while now. Why aren't they making plastics that break down and disappear after a certain time? Well, there's been a bit of work in that direction. You know, they're talking about bioplastics at world grade, the cornstarch, a few different other products. But uh, the point about it is that there's still just thousands and thousands of tons of the other stuff being made all of the time, and it seems to be everywhere you go. Go down to a cafe... Have uh, one of those slurpy things. Have you noticed those takeaway coffee cups lately? Everywhere. The whole streets are washed with them. Now, there's four R's. Well, uh, there's actually uh, refuse, remove, repair, reuse. Oh, there's all sorts of R's. <laughs> Ridiculous. Rubbish. We're talking about rubbish here. we got to have reduce in there, too. Now, it's all right for you to tell me, but what you need to do is be talking to children. They're the ones that are going to so-called inherit the earth. How do you do it? Well, I got this ukulele, you see, so uh, it's uh, got a pickup in it and uh, beautiful sounds it makes. And uh, I go down to the beach and sing a song called Just Add Water with them. It's all about just putting nothing but the water into the stormwater drains, you know. A lot of people don't understand that when it rains, the drains in the streets where they live, somewhere in the suburbs, eventually go to the bay. And so they don't understand that when they drop that plastic on the street, it's not a problem. Well, it is a problem, really, isn't it? So we've got to get that message across and particularly talk to people where they live because that's where it all begins. How can people identify you when you're down at the beach? Well, <laughs> I look a lot like that uh, Neil Blake fella, you know. I don't know if you ever seen him, but uh, he's got this big, long, white beard. Bit of a wacky guy. But anyway, yeah, so uh, people can generally spot me, and I also got the pirate hat on and, the, you know, the eye patch and all that sort of stuff, and the ukulele too. Have you got a pet parrot? No, uh, I actually had a, a raven. That's another R word because of the ravens, you know. You might have heard that the traditional owners of our, our land here, the raven, was known as Wah. It goes, ah, ah, ah. He was, uh, and still is, the protector of the waterways. So that's why he goes around saying, ah, 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 reminding everybody of reduce, reuse. Recycle, refuse, repair, and remove. Do you go into schools? I do if they let me. But, you know, sometimes they, they call us security.
No, you have gone professional with this. You have got a proper song, haven't you? Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to get the word out, and I've found that music's a good way to do it, especially if it sticks in people's heads, you know. And so uh, the song called Just Add Water sort of sums up what the issue is, that we just got to stop dropping that plastic crap. And where are you distributing this song? It's not really heading for world domination. <laughs> ah, but the first, you'll hear it first on 3CR. Before you go, Captain Trash, how do you get on with the kids? Are some of the kids frightened of you or they they reckon you're pretty good? Well, you know, kids, these days they're not frightened of much at all because I kind of like them anyway, so we seem to get along pretty well. And a lot of them like to sing the song. That's a call and response thing, you know. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. Just that water. 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 Now all the wild thing. All the wild thing. That love to swim. That love to swim. Fur and flippers and feathers and fins. Got a special thing. Got a special thing. They're swimming in. They're swimming in. We gotta keep it how it's always been. Take a walk out on the pier as the waves come rolling in. Hold a shell up to your ears. Can you hear the ocean sing? Just add water. Just add water. Yeah, water. Now it's a way of life. It's a way of life. Too good to lose. Too good to lose. So come on in and join the crew. Pick up your trash. Pick up your trash. You've got to hand. You've got to hand. They gotta leave only footprints in the sand. Your plastic trash. Your plastic trash. Is that death trap? Is that death trap? So why don't you just take it back? Take a walk out on the pier. That's the way it's gonna grow. Shell up to your ear. Can't you hear the ocean sing? If you care for me, then I can care for you. If you care for me, I can care for you.
Captain Trash, who came into 3CR a few days ago. And I'll tell you somewhere where you'll be able to meet Captain Trash. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre, St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. And it's welcome home to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan who spent September in Japan. A major focus, Nick, for Japanese is the Prime Minister Abe. His moves particularly regarding Japan's constitution, which forbids combat overseas. But we need to go back to December 2013. The Abe government brought in a new state secrets law, which was passed in December 2013. And as the name suggests, it's about national security. Um, We've seen the same sort of phenomenon in Australia, where um, the Abbott government used uh, national security legislation to um, restrict journalists' right to information, to gut freedom of information laws, uh, to declare that certain areas of uh, government policy were a state secret and therefore had a lot more exemptions. And this is also tied to a broader challenge to media freedom and uh, media rights in Japan. One thing the Australian government's never managed to do is to completely nobble the ABC. But what we've seen under the Abe government, which was elected in first 2011, was the, the real constraining of NHK, that's the national broadcaster, essentially the equivalent of the ABC for Japan. And Abe managed to put in as director a guy called Katsuto Momi, who's one of his uh, henchmen, I suppose. Uh, And um, it's been quite significant that uh, the the national broadcaster has really toned down its coverage of critics and protests against Abe government policy. Katsuto Momi said, and I quote, when the government is saying right, we can't say left, and therefore... When there's been protests um, outside the the Diet, the National Parliament, um, they just haven't been covered by the national broadcaster. And it got particularly bad in 2014 as the Abe government uh, put forward a package of legislation to basically challenge uh, Japan's pacifist constitution. Uh, There were some major protests and indeed some individual protests in June 2014 a young man went to Shinjuku Station, which is a major suburb right in the heart of Tokyo, was going to Flinders Street Station equivalent, and burnt himself to death uh, in protest of the, um, uh, the laws. A similar action happened in November 2014. But uh, when the, the first incident happened in Shinjuku Station, which is right in the heart of Tokyo, 
it wasn't covered by many of the daily newspapers, and indeed the 7pm bulletin of NHK News that night didn't report on the fact that a man had tried to burn himself to death against government policy. It's quite a, a stunning situation. And so what we've seen, this culture of national security to justify uh, everything, is permeating other areas of, of the media. And that's also mobilised a lot of people who are really angry at the lack of transparency in government. And that derives particularly from the period around after the accident at Fukushima. The Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear reactor uh, has caused massive suspicion of government because of the cover-ups, because of the ongoing lies about what happened at the Fukushima plant and uh, uh, what are the ongoing impacts from uh, the radiation leakages at Fukushima, which continue to this day. Article 9. All of this has come about because Japan has a history of opposition to militarisation. Um, the experience of militarism in the 1930s, where Japan invaded Korea, went to war against China and Manchuria, against the United States, obviously, after Pearl Harbour. The US occupying force um, after the Second World War helped write the Japanese constitution and famously Article 9 of Japan's constitution gives up the right to war. Article 9 says, aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. To accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognised. So here you have entrenched in the Constitution a clause that says, we renounce war as a sovereign right. We will not have armed forces. We will not use or threaten force as a means of settling international dispute. Now, most nation-states are based on the monopoly of violence against other states. Uh, so this is a really, not unique, but certainly uh, powerful. Having said that, right from the time of the US occupation in the 1940s, Japan has increasingly been integrated into American military strategy in East Asia. And by 1954, Japan had created the Japanese Self-Defence Force. So it's not an army, it's a self-defence force with an army, a navy, an air force. Um, and indeed, Japan today has one of the largest military forces in the world. Uh, it's not the largest, but it's certainly quite substantial. And what we've seen over time, particularly in uh, the, the later part of the 20th century and ongoing today, is the increasing integration of the Japan Self-Defence Force into US forward deployments in the Western Pacific. And obviously that's targeted against China and North Korea. And so Japan's military growth... And what we've seen is this tension between the Constitution, which says that Japan renounces war as a sovereign right, and the reality that Japan is increasingly integrated into US military deployments in the Western Pacific and indeed exists under the nuclear umbrella that the United States provide. And in many ways, it's very similar to Australia. Japan has US intelligence facilities and US bases on its soil, indeed particularly on Okinawa, the island in the Ryukus, Okinawa has enormous numbers of US military bases, particularly for the US Marines and so on. And uh, there's been a lot of pressure from people in Okinawa for the US bases to be uh, removed because of ongoing problems around noise and toxics and the rape of women by US military personnel, uh, ongoing sexual harassment, the destruction of the local biodiversity, goes on and on and on. 
And so, for example, the US has been proposing to re- relocate Marines from Okinawa to Guam to try and lessen some of the pressure um, that's coming from the Okinawan people to kick out all of the bases. But they're also proposing to relocate bases from urban centres to uh, slightly more rural or outlying areas. And there's a major struggle at the moment where there's a massive base at Futenma and the US government, with support from the Abe government in Japan, is proposing to create a new facility at Henoko in Okinawa. And uh, there's a massive battle going on around the relocation of the Futenma base. How um, big is the island of Okinawa that they can have all those bases? It's substantial. It? It's a big, big island, but it's also very much like Guam. Uh, it's been completely militarised right through since uh, the American occupation after 1945. And uh, the bases that were created during the Cold War are still there, uh, even though America's gone through a whole lot of base relocation programs since the Clinton administration in the 1990s. They've maintained their presence in Japan. And also the fact that the people of Guam kicked up a big stink, they didn't want them coming there either. Absolutely. Already about 30% of Guam's land area is covered by US naval bases and air bases. The big air base at Anderson Air Force Base, APRA Harbor is a major military base uh, uh, for the US Navy. Uh, there's marine facilities and intelligence facilities and so on. And so the proposal to relocate 5,000 Marines, originally 8,000 Marines, from Okinawa to Guam has sparked new protests. So this is part of the problem. At the same time, Japan's remilitarization and increasing integration into US uh, policy in the region is causing angst from neighbouring countries like not only China but Korea um, because of the failure of successive Japanese governments to really acknowledge the history of Japanese militarism during the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, the colonisation of Korea after the First World War period, the, uh, uh, the beginning of the Pacific War in, in uh, China where Japan deployed troops throughout China, the Nanjing Massacre, the whole history of what are called comfort women, uh, where women, particularly from Korea, but also from Philippines, from China, from other places, were used as prostitutes in in military brothels by the Japanese forces, um, and the total denial of conservative forces and right-wing forces in Japan to acknowledge that history. There's been battles going on for decades over school books, for example, for them to accurately portray what Japanese militarism and fascism did during the Second World War and the, the 1930s, at the same time that Nazi Germany and Italy were at war in, in Republican Spain to try and crush the Spanish Revolution in the 1930s. So Japan was at war in China even before they took on the Americans, uh, which was a silly thing to do. So that history still lingers in East Asia. And unlike Nazi Germany, where Germany's gone through a, a process of uh, you know historical analysis and attempts at reconciliation with neighbours, Japan has really failed in that process. And Shinzo Abe, as a conservative politician, very much in the uh, Tony Abbott mould of crash or crash through, is, is, uh, really exemplifies that historical revisionism that is seeing the remilitarisation. But he couldn't crash through the constitution, could he? He couldn't. And that's why we've seen um, over this year, particularly starting, you know, really with the state sec- security laws in 2013, but continuing right through last year and this year, Abe has been unable to persuade the people of Japan that they should go through an elaborate constitutional revision to get rid of Article 9 
So what he's essentially been doing is putting through a series of laws, which is essentially one new law and revisions to 10 existing laws, um, to put through a legislative package that essentially guts the content of Article 9. And what the, the new legislative package will do is that it frees up the Japanese military from constraints that have existed under Article 9 about belligerency and maintaining land, air and sea forces. So the sort of four or five areas that would allow Japan's forces to become so-called normal military forces and one area, a crucial area, is so-called limited collective self-defence, that Japan could have collective self-defence deploying military forces to respond to an attack against a friendly foreign country. So in that circumstance, one could imagine that if North Korea attacked US forces, Japan could come to their aid. Prime Minister Abe has proposed ideas like if a US ship was attacked while transporting Japanese citizens, we're getting out of a conflict zone, we could go to war, and so on. They've also suggested, for example, that Japanese ships could patrol the Straits of Hormuz, uh, as Australian warships do, with the sanctions against Iran. Um, We've had Australian, Royal Australian Navy ships patrolling up and down the Straits, uh, monitoring uh, the sanctions and stopping ships and so on. So this would not be going to war, but it would allow Japanese forces to be integrated into US naval deployments in the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf, depending on, on your position. And is, is it a fact that at the moment they're allowed to be in peacekeeping? That's been historic, has it? Only since the 1990s, uh, Japan has had some deployments in peacekeeping. For example, they sent some troops to Cambodia for peacekeeping. There was a lot of concern at that time that this would be the slippery slope, that many people in the peace movement felt that this was just the first step in legitimising military deployment overseas, and that's been the case, that uh, conservative forces having said, oh, it's just for peacekeeping under the UN banner. One of the other changes is that um, under the new package of laws, it's proposed that the military, with approval by the Diet, the Parliament, uh, could provide logistic support to armed forces of other countries who were seeking to secure international peace. And so that would mean that uh, if US forces were deployed to secure international peace, Japan could support them. Um, so once again, it's this feature of the Japanese self-defence forces, which are quite significant, being integrated further into US deployments. The package of laws would allow Japan to provide logistics support to the United States and other countries engaged in operations with important influence on Japanese security. Now, what does that mean, important influence on security? could be anything, Zabe's sort of laws and, and so on. Did he write these himself or did he get oh, no, help? there's been a whole team of people, and the Americans have been very supportive of this process. The laws also allow for asset protection, allowing Japan's military to protect weapons and other equipment of the United States and other armed forces when they're engaged in operations that contribute to Japan's defence. So once again, it's worded in terms of security, in terms of defence and so on, but you can imagine a whole range of scenarios. Japan is reliant on oil from the Middle East, and if there are uh, oil transports passing through the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Gulf uh, and other areas, you can imagine Japan supporting US deployments to protect something that contributes to Japanese security. So these sort of word games, uh, as I say... The government has been unable to challenge Article 9 directly, 
and everywhere there are banners, you know, with nine uh, badges, young people wearing badges just with the number nine on it. Uh, you see that quite a bit uh, with, uh, you know, this the symbolic importance of Article 9. But really, in substance, Article 9 has been gutted. Uh, going back many years, they've had a very strong defence force in Japan and now that defence force is being normalised to be a normal military force. Just talk about the opposition to these moves, first within the parliament and then outside the parliament. There's been a lot of opposition to this across the country, and indeed in opinion polls the Abe government has suffered very badly because of this. Um, there's majority opposition, sometimes up to 60-70% of people opposed to the package of laws. However, Abe is in a very strong position with majorities in both the lower house and the upper house of Japan's parliament. For the first time in 2009, the Japanese people elected an opposition party to government, the Demo- Democratic Party of Japan. Um, the Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, which is been in power right through the 20th century, created essentially after the Second World War, managed by the Americans, and with an electoral system that benefits the LDP through its uh, gerrymander of rural constituencies and so on, the LDP has ruled, or different factions of the LDP have ruled. It's quite complex internally, and Japanese prime ministers are turfed out in factional wars. We've seen this with Turnbull and Abbott. It's the new future. Um, This has gone on in Japan for a long time. The government that came in in 2009 under the Democratic Party, however, really failed in government for a variety of reasons. One problem was that they were elected on a wave of anger about the global financial crisis in 2007-2008. As always, the opposition gets to pick up the pieces at a time of economic crisis. But in Japan, as elsewhere in Europe and America, very difficult economic times, and the government that was elected was inexperienced and copped a lot of flack. Secondly, of course, the uh, Fukushima crisis, the tsunami and... uh, um, destruction of uh, parts of northern Japan, and particularly the nuclear reactor, shut down Japan's nuclear system. And Japan, like France, is very reliant on nuclear power for its electricity generation. And so you've had a crisis of governance around that. For that reason, in elections in 2011, the economic failures of the DJP government and the, um, the Fukushima crisis... Abe won elections in 2011 with an overwhelming majority and people turned to the Abe government. Parallels with Australia are a bit striking where, you know, you had the Rudd chaos um, uh, trying to deal with the GFC, mining taxes, carbon taxes, dealing with climate, energy debates, should we rely on traditional sources of energy? You know, the parallels are are quite interesting. And the election of Tony Abbott, uh, you know, the parallels are very interesting as well. Abe is is a similar mould deeply reactionary politician, a long history of belligerence uh, against others and uh, uh, very much believing in Japanese traditionalism. So in uh, alliance with the Komote Party, a smaller governing party, which is split because of its support for Abe, Abe has been able to ram through this package of laws. Firstly, announced in 2014, in July this year, they passed the lower house, And while we were in Japan uh, in September, on September the 19th, they passed a vote in the upper house by 148 votes to 90 votes. So as you can see, a substantial majority within parliament. 
However, there are uh, upper house elections coming up and the polls are suggesting that Abe will suffer a significant defeat in the upper house elections, which are due um, later this year. Is it too late? Well, it is too late in that the laws have passed and it's a significant defeat for the peace movement, but it's not over. Um, there are a number of people suggesting that the new laws are unconstitutional and there is uh, proposals by a number of lawyers and others to take the, um, the case to the Supreme Court. However, Japan, it's a bit difficult at the moment because under the laws there's no actual damage to any Japanese citizen so far <laughs> by the passage of the laws. So how do you matter a case for something that hasn't happened yet? And so it's possible, however, that law, uh, challenges will be brought in the district courts, the lower courts in Japan, and set a series of precedents in uh, areas, say, where there's a major naval base, that a local district course might rule that the base should not be used for breaches of Article 9 and so on. And by using that legal challenge, there may be ways of constraining the operations of the laws. So Abe has, however, remobilised the peace movement in Japan. While we were in Japan, we um, in Tokyo one day, we came across a massive rally just two or three days after the laws passed the, um, uh, the upper house of Japan's parliament. There was a major rally in Tokyo near Yoyogi Park in Shinjuku. Thousands and thousands of people were gathered. Banners, no war and no nukes um, because they've very much integrated the question about reopening Japan's nuclear program, which has been largely shut down since the Fukushima accident, the, the issue of nuclear power and nuclear weapons, uh, the issue of military deployments are all integrated. And it's a really vibrant movement. Um, and what's particularly significant has been the growth of a younger generation of peace activists. As in Australia, the peace movement is largely ageing, coming out of the Vietnam era, the New Left and so on, the old Communist Party. Japan's Communist Party is still battling on, and the old peace movement is very much tied to that history. But one of the interesting features of the protests that have occurred uh, in recent times has been the gr growth of a new student-led movement. Uh, there's a peak coordinating group called SEALD, the Students' Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy, um, a rather clumsy name. But that group, SEALD, has managed to mobilise thousands of young people uh, who've been engaged in quite innovative protests outside Parliament on Friday and Saturday nights, uh, they regularly meet in Tokyo and in other places to protest uh, against um, the new legislative package. Have there been any attempts to shut down the demonstrations? Oh, there's been a lot of pressure. They've certainly been censored in the media, you know. A lot of the, the protests haven't properly been covered in the major daily newspapers. Um, editorially, surprise, surprise. Yeah, I mean, think about the Australian media. I mean, it, it, it's the same sort of problem, that um, to break through both with NHK being increasingly under government control and the mainstream capitalist media that have supported Abe in his policies to integrate closely. This is all tied, of course, to the TPP negotiations, which are on as we speak, uh, um, trying to integrate Japan, Australia and other Pacific Rim countries into an American-led uh, economic trade agreement. Um, so there's been a whole other debate about Japan's economy and the integration of Japan uh, into uh, the US-led Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Um, so that's part of the package as well. But Seattle has also been playing to an American audience. One of the interesting things, they're very much of the Occupy generation. 
uh, very driven by creative use of social media. Um, so uh, seeing a Seattle protest, a lot of the young people are carrying signs in English rather than in Japanese. They're not just talking to a local audience, they're talking to an American audience. And they tweet and uh, um, uh, Instagram and so on, send photos of their protests to America and to sympathetic forces in America to try and you know make the point. And, you know, it's lots of protest banners printed up. I can't believe we're still protesting this shit. It was one of the banners <laughs> um, that I thought captured the, the spirit of, you know, this younger generation saying, how come this is still going on? It's clear that the people of Japan don't want this stuff. And they, they draw on American-style slogans. This is what democracy looks like is another banner that was there. And uh, so there's a lot of, you know, uh, energy for younger people who've seen you know, Japan's future being increasingly integrated into American military deployments. How much of it is fear of being conscripted into an army by the young people? I don't think there's that um, uh, as much as, as a sense that Japan has had a unique history of pacifism. pacifism. The experience of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is still uh, widely uh, shared. But there are blind spots in Japanese culture, and that's true on the left as much as the right, where there are real battles over history. Um, and there were little things. We went to Nagasaki, to the Peace Park. The bomb dropped on uh, Nagasaki, fell near the site of the Urakami prison, which was a major prison in Nagasaki. And many of the people who were working in and around Nagasaki were overseas workers. There were forced labourers, particularly from Korea, from China, there were also a number of prisoners of war, and so people like Tom Uren and others who uh, witnessed uh, Alan Chick and many others who were um, American, British, Australian prisoners of war witnessed the uh, atom blast at Nagasaki. And so the Peace Park in, in the centre there. There was a memorial to the Korean foreign workers created in 1979 on the outskirts of the Peace Park. And I noticed a, another memorial to the Chinese foreign workers who were killed and affected by the, um, the Nagasaki blast, created in 2008. So it took until 2008 before there was a memorial in the Peace Park acknowledging that Chinese workers had been killed or their health affected. So there's these blind spots where conservative opinion in Japan refuses to acknowledge um, that not only were Japanese people victim of the U.S. terror bombings, the fire bombings of Tokyo, the uh, atom bomb of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also that there were many foreigners affected as well. And it's thanks once again to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, and we'll hear more about Japan on the program next week. Time is five minutes past five. And for the final part of Tuesday Home Time for today, I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus, whom I rang at his home in New York earlier today, and began by saying that the US and friends were free to bomb in Syria, but heaven forbid if anyone, i.e. the Russians, supports the target of the US aggression, no go. Well, I think it's very clear that the uh, U.S. and uh, its European allies, or if you will, the vassals, have been pulling punches, the supposedly uh, bombing 
terrorists if we're to believe the accounts coming out of Russia and RT they've done more in a week to defeat the uh, terrorists in Syria than the US has done in over a year i think the hypocrisy has a deeper meaning and i think it has to do with the fact that they've uh, been very selective in uh, their so-called intervention and i think they are clearly a qualitative change now i think the uh, the mercenaries and invaders that have been occupying parts of Syria are on the run now and and I think it should be attributed to this intervention by President Putin. Is it also a fact that Russia is expanding its military bases in Syria? Well, I think they've always had bases there. I think what they're really concerned about is the breakdown of the Syrian government as it becomes a nest for Chechnyans and other terrorists that have been bombing Russian cities. They saw what happened in Libya, and I, I think they uh, correctly evaluated that the West is in no position to create a secure country. I think they are intervening in part to support an ally and to maintain their base, but also I think equally important it's part of their attack on these uh, terrorists that operate out of the Caucasus and threaten Russian security and I think they're doing a very good job they claim there are thousands of Chechnyans that have gone to Syria and I'm I'm sure there are other Caucasian extremists that have been taking advantage of the arms and training and the question is when they go home they're likely to be uh, well prepared to uh, to spread the terrorist activity so overall i think both from the point of view of maintaining syria as a viable state preserving their uh, base in Syria and also for their own national security, I, I think it's all been a positive move. And I think it undermines the efforts by the U.S. to destroy Syria like they destroyed Iraq and they destroyed Libya and Somalia and all these other countries that they intervene and destroy. They don't establish viable alternative states. We've had the opposition foreign minister here repeating over and over that Assad, that he's responsible for 250,000 deaths of his own people. Uh, This is absolutely ludicrous. Most of the deaths have occurred since the U.S.-sponsored uprising and the Turkish-Saudi financing of these terrorists that have come into the country. In no way is Assad responsible for those 250,000 deaths. I think they all occurred uh, coincidentally with the uh, uprising. Uh, The most you can say is Assad's father was responsible for upward of 20,000 killings of the Islamic groups that rose up against him several decades ago. But I I think the government did put down, but it didn't kill even thousands of people, maybe uh, several hundred people were put down in the original uprising uh, back four years ago. 
but nothing of 250,000 as a result of the Western instigated war against us. Assad has demonstrated over and over willingness to negotiate with the political opposition. Maybe before he was reticent about negotiating, but I think he's demonstrated, and I think Putin is strongly in favor of a, a negotiated settlement, which will include down the road, once the situation is stabilized, the open and free election in which Assad would participate. I quite agree with you, but you have these ministers saying, well, this is the facts, and not one journalist will question them. It's amazing. And then they have this so-called observatory in England, which is a one-man operation, attempts to interview him to find out what his organization is. It's been fruitless. Who finances him is fruitless. It's clearly the observatory is a very makeshift operation that has support from British government and relies on hearsay and third-hand information. I think it's totally unreliable regarding the facts about uh, chemical weapons by Assad and dropping bombs on civilians or Russians bombing the wrong people in Syria. This is totally from an unreliable source. And then you have the fact of the Syrian Free Army. Who's arming them? Well, what's the most interesting part is the U.S. has allocated $500 million to train mercenaries to go in, uh, apart from the ones that they're financing that are already operating in Syria. And these people, they admit as soon as they cross the border, they take their arms and hand it over to the Al-Qaeda franchise or even ISIS in, in large scale and, and of the couple hundred people that they've trained, uh, according to this program, 90% of them have uh, turned over their arms and, and joined the terrorists that they're supposed to be fighting. So it's been a total and un- unmitigated disaster from even the U.S. perspective. The move by Russia will only intensify the political crisis inside Turkey, is that correct? Well, Erdogan is a dictator. He's jailed hundreds of journalists, probably per capita. More journalists have been jailed in Turkey than any other country in the world. He smashed uh, civil society demonstrations, built pharaonic palace for himself, and has been involved in high-level corruption. And I I I think that this terror campaign against the Kurds that he's launched and uh, is, is ongoing is a way of trying to use uh, a foreign enemy as a unifying slogan to uh, get himself elected with a uh, absolute majority in order to seize total executive powers and, and uh, turn Turkey into a kind of Bonapartist dictatorship. It's hard to surmise what the reaction in Turkey is. Clearly, Erdogan is trying to exploit it. He's trying to uh, use it as a talking point uh, for getting uh, better relations with the uh, Western countries. And they're also negotiating with him on refugees that they create through their wars. 
all of these problems resulting from the uh, invasion of Syria and the destruction wrought by the uh, Western proxies. And, and I think uh, Turkey is today a economically uh, a crisis-ridden society. The, the uh, Turkish lira is dropping precipitously. Uh, their balance of payments are way out of whack. And their foreign financing of their uh, deficit is a problem. And uh, the whole situation has become very questionable. Will this interference by Russia make Israel less willing to interfere? Yes, I think it's absolutely certain that the meeting between Netanyahu and Putin meant that the uh, Israelis will not be sending airplanes up now that the Russians have decided to uh, involve themselves in the aerial combat. I think the possibilities are very remote because... Israel will meet its match. Israel is a bully country, and it engages in warfare against people like the Palestinians that have no air force or have a weak air force, and they are less likely to engage Russia because the Russian airplanes are equal or superior to Israeli aircraft. And uh, Russia has very advanced ground-to-air missiles, so... I think you're right. It's going to lessen the possibility, at least in central and northern Syria. They may continue to be a nuisance and an aggressor on the Golan Heights, which uh, talk in Israel now about uh, officially annexing them and, and converting it into an extension of Israel. We're coming up to the end of 2015, What about the people of Syria? Nearly four years of war. Well, it's clear they've been ravaged, they've been raped, they've been violated, they've been killed, and they've been driven out of their countries, and that's where you have the huge refugee problem. It's a problem of Western imperialism, and uh, refugees are payback that uh, they have destroyed the possibilities for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Syrians to live and to work and to go on with life. And so they flee to Germany and other countries where they can try to survive and make a living. And I think the uh, experience has been a a very telling one, and it's having an effect on the uh, leading politicians. Merkel is prestige is falling because the people that didn't oppose Western aggression in Syria now are paying the consequences and and their reaction against their leaders is partly a response to their policies, even though the immediate target is the crowding in of refugees and the uh, crowding of welfare and medical and educational facilities. That's the price they pay for supporting imperialist governments that destroy other people's lives. And the impact of what's been happening in the last few weeks on Iran? Well, Iran is uh, uh, relatively better off now because uh, Rouhani has liberalized the uh, human rights, uh, the political climate for intellectuals and, and in general, 
Uh, he's not as authoritarian and repressive. He's a devout Muslim, but he's also very tolerant and understanding. And I think that his uh, the results in Iran are favorable, though one has to be very cautious because no sanctions have been lifted yet. That is to say, the West claims they're waiting for the Iranians to implement the agreement, but at the same time, uh, the $100 billion that they froze on Iran hasn't been released. Sanctions on uh, oil dealings haven't been released, and the Zionists in the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, have in fact slapped on new sanctions and new uh, punishment of banks and other institutions that have been dealing with Iran. So uh, it's uh, a picture is mixed. A great deal of optimism and hope in Iran that they can move forward without sanctions and with greater freedom. But at the same time, I think they need to be very cautious that uh, all of this goes up in smoke because of uh, the influence that Zionists have on, uh, on Western uh, policy, too, at Iran. Moving to Greece, the election was held, or the, the latest election was held on the 20th of September. Syriza won again against many odds. Why? I think, first of all, that uh, there was a 45% abstention, which was up from uh, less than 30% previously. So there was a huge increase of disenchanted people who, uh, despite the fact that voting is obligatory, uh, decided not to vote. So nearly a half of the electorate didn't vote. Syriza actually gets about 21% of the electorate in winning the election. And I think that it's a question of people having no hope in uh, the previous uh, parties and rulers. And uh, the uh, left wing of Syriza, the popular unity group, was made up of officials who sat through uh, during all of the capitulations of Syriza. They never organized any mass movement outside of parliament they made their criticisms inside the party, inside the cabinet, and uh, they never were in touch with people who had grievances and who were who, who are going to pay the price. I, I think they're mostly academics from uh, British universities and academics from Greece. They have no experience in class struggle, or class organization, class marches. And the Communist Party didn't do so well because it's so sectarian and never attempts to pry loose the people who are disenchanted with Syriza. It, it, it condemns everything that associated with Syriza, not distinguishing between its leaders and its mass base. And I think they're, they've locked themselves into a, a very secluded position. So Syriza has now begun to draw from the right-wing uh, party support, the uh, so-called independent Greece. They are putting in position of influence the, the, the uh, corrupt people from, uh, 
from PASOK, the so-called Socialist Party, Analytic Socialist Party. Uh, Tsipras is a very close friend of the big oligarchs in the shipping industry. In fact, he spent the summer in a villa provided by one of the big ship owners who flew him in a helicopter from the villa to uh, Parliament and uh, pays for a school that costs thousands of dollars, private school for Cypress's children. So it's a very, very corrupt regime that's playing on people's fears. And and I think the uh, real negative adverse cuts are going to take place after the elections. That's why Tsipras convoked the elections in September, because he has to implement this drastic draconian cuts in September, October, November, in order to uh, meet the uh, demands of the uh, European Union. And, And I think the fallout is going to be from here to the end of November. That is demonstrations and protests. Is the economy strong enough to repay that debt? No, it can't repay. What they're going to do is recycle the loans that they get from the European Union and uh, to pay off the uh, creditors, bankers in uh, the Troika, European Union. Uh, None of this money is going to have any uh, impact either on uh, Greek social life, nor will it allow them to stimulate the economy. So it's just going to pile on more hardships and more debt. Well, more austerity means it's not it's going to work the other way, isn't it? They're not going to get money out of people yes. if people haven't got money to more spend. Austerity means less consumer power, less money for uh, local producers and and uh, investors are going to keep away from Greece who wants to uh, invest in a country which is uh, bankrupt and has uh, accumulating debts and a a very corrupt government. And yet Greece has taken more than its share of the refugees coming in? They're taking them in. They're in transit. They're trying to get out of Greece. Who wants to stay in a country with 30% unemployment and uh, uh, a GNP that's in reverse? I think uh, Greece is being hit with the first wave of refugees, thousands of people crowding into an uh, uh, into the islands in the Aegean, which are bankrupt, Lesbos, Hios, etc., uh, Kos. And there's no way they don't even have uh, facilities to process these refugees and set them on their way north. So... It's an added burden that Greece has assumed by remaining within the European Union. And how did the Golden Dawn do in the elections, and what's the prospects for them? Well, they increased somewhat, but not dramatically, a couple of percentage points, a couple of more uh, deputies. Uh, I think the the main protest was the abstention. Uh, Some increase among the extreme right, particularly among unemployed youth, that's the demographics of Golden Dawn, picked up uh, voters among the unemployed youth that decided to vote. The others that didn't, bulk of them didn't vote at all, but the ones that voted, uh, a percentage of them voted for the uh, right because the right 
is uh, very strongly opposed to the European Union. They didn't vote for them because of their Nazi affinities. They voted for them because they reject the European Union and the austerity program. And I'd imagine that this result won't stem the people leaving Greece for a better life somewhere else if they can get it? Oh, I think a lot of the Greek people want to leave Greece, especially younger professionals who have opportunities elsewhere, a skilled labor force. There already has an outward flow of tens of thousands of Greeks have left looking for jobs in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, England, the United States, Germany. There's a great wave of uh, exodus, as many as can pack up and leave. Can I take you to Japan for a few minutes, James? Abe's government, what's he doing for Japan? Well, Japan is heading into a deep recession. It's already uh, on the verge right now. Uh, They signed the Trans-Pacific which is going to damage substantially the farming sector in Japan, particularly rice growers. I think there will also be small and medium-sized enterprises that will be prejudiced, and the big corporations will be the beneficiaries. The problem in Japan is that there is no party that represents the disaffected. Okinawa is opposed to the U.S. bases, and uh, the majority of Japanese are opposed to the uh, remilitarization and the reconstruction of an imperial army. But there's no party of significance, apart from the small communist party, uh, that represents those uh, sentiments. So as abominable as Abe is on all the major issues of war, peace, taxation, uh, and other issues. He's, he's very regressive on everything, regressive taxes, regressive policies toward the Fukushima uh, disaster, the pollution, the contamination. But there's no party. The so-called Democratic Party has been in, up to its ears in favor of some of the very measures that Abe is implementing. And relations with China? will be continued to be uh, negative, and and they're having a big effect on Japan's industries. Japan cannot compete with China in some of the major sectors. For example, Indonesia just gave China the big multi-billion dollar contract to build the uh, high-speed railway, and I think China will continue to out-muscle the Japanese uh, economy. I think uh, China's uh, infrastructure bank is uh, going to be a success, and Japan has self-excluded itself. I think clearly China is outclassing Japan on every count. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And that was Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to me from New York very early this morning. That's all I have for you for today. As I said before, we were hearing more from Nick McClellan about his time in Japan on the program next week. But apart from that, that's all I have for today. So we'll go on to Food Fight and I'll be back next Tuesday, as I said, four o'clock. Bye for now. <laughs>